Do you find yourself wrestling against a certain sin and it never seems to end? If that would be true of you, the good news is that you do not have to remain in such a state. This morning we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about our being extracted from the snare of sin that tends to dominate our lives when we don't understand how to overcome it. Open your Bible with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at the 14th chapter of the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at one part of one verse. The 14th verse of the 14th chapter, easy to remember where this is. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible, and this is the way in which this verse reads, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. Backsliding is not a term that we typically use, not even in the church. It's a perfectly legitimate way of describing what happens to someone when that person has made progress because the whole concept of backsliding implies that you were or that person in question was making progress, but something happened and now the person finds herself or himself in a state of sliding backwards away from previous progress. This passage of Scripture reminded me immediately of the passage that we read as a congregation just a little bit ago from Revelation chapter 2, the letter which Jesus writes, as it were, to His church at Ephesus. He begins by commending them. He complimented them on their devotion in terms of the works that they did. He also complimented them on the fact that they would not tolerate wrong doctrine. They ferreted out the false teachers in their community. They were committed in that way. But then he stops and he says, it's rather bracing. I wish I could remember the first time I read this and how it caught me off guard. I remember it. can't remember exactly how many years ago. But he says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Which raises a very important question. What was the first love of that church? What was that which drew them to an intimate relationship with God? It was the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Something had happened over time. We know this letter was written before the end of the first century. This was the first generation of believers in that church. One of the earliest churches, the church at Ephesus, which the Apostle Paul established in the power of the Holy Spirit. But something had happened. They had substituted their good works they had substituted also their insistence upon perfect doctrine for the thing that the Lord Jesus wanted most from them and the thing He wants most from any church in any era of church history. He wants their love. He wants us to want intimacy with Him. We cannot, we cannot afford to exchange intimacy with Christ for busyness. 
the church at Ephesus, if it were in El Paso today, if we had a church just like that church, it would be a church which would probably be admired by most churches in El Paso because it was a veritable beehive of activity. There would be something going on every day and every night of the week. On the weekend, there would have been something awesome happening in the gathering of people. But as the church gathered during the week, they were all about doing good deeds. Now, let me stop here. Is it unchristlike to do good deeds? No. In fact, in the book of Acts, Luke describes Jesus in this way. He was a man who went about doing good. The church that's like Christ will be filled with good deeds. In writing to Titus, Paul talks about how we have been saved from our sin in order to do good deeds. And in the book of Ephesians itself, remember what the Bible says in the second chapter, the tenth verse, We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So good works are part of being a follower of Christ. But they are no substitute. Mark it down. For the thing which Jesus wants more than anything else from you and me. He wants intimacy with us. Later in the series of seven letters, that Jesus sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He writes to Laodicea, and he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him or her and dine with him or her. Jesus, as it were, was knocking on the door of that church. Jesus was being kept out of that church. They had a different problem. They were complacent. They were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. They had a different issue. But they, not unlike the Ephesian church, the bookends of these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, both of these were lacking in intimacy. And when Jesus makes that appeal to them, and it's as if Jesus is making the same appeal to us too today, even though we live some 2,000 years later in history, Jesus is making this appeal to us today. And He's saying, I want to come in and have intimacy with you. And by the way, the meal that He speaks of, the dinner meal, was the most celebrated of meals. It was like a festival every evening because the day's work was done. There was a time to relax and to enjoy not simply food, the best foods would be served in the evening, and there was no hurry in the evening, and so people could really spend time with each other. And this is exactly what Jesus has in mind for you and me, what he had in mind for the Ephesians and the Laodiceans. He wants to have fellowship with you and me, intimacy with us. It is so common among us who have had intimacy with Him, to find ourselves slipping in to substituting things for that which is necessary. Remember when Jesus and His disciples visited the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany, and Martha hurried into the kitchen, visiting a meal, serving the Lord. And certainly it was right. She was doing something good for Jesus. Imagine 
She was doing it. And she comes out of the kitchen and she finds, and she's disgusted as what she finds. She finds her younger sister sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what is she doing? She's listening to his word. She's developing an intimate relationship with Jesus. And it flew all over Martha to the degree that she actually called Jesus on the carpet. Can you imagine? And he said, hey, don't you know that I need my little sister's help and she's just sitting here wasting time? And then what did Jesus say? Martha, Martha. Whenever Jesus would repeat a name twice, it was a way of his affirming the person and letting that person know, I love you, I care for you. But then he hits her like that. He wants to make sure she knows that he loves her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about many things. You're out here working and you're ministering. Actually, Luke, as he's describing it, says this about Martha. Martha was distracted by her many ministries is the word, actually. It's a word that's used throughout the New Testament for the word ministry. Many ministries. She was doing good deeds for Jesus, ministering directly to him and his traveling companions. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about many things, but only one thing matters. What is that? Your sister Mary has found it. And it's the only thing, listen carefully, it's the only thing that will not be taken away from her or you or anyone else. When the Lord invites us to open the door, and by the way, the idea is anyone. It's not a congregational meeting like this. Although you can have intimacy with the Lord in a congregational meeting like this, but it's a one-on-one. One of my professors, Dr. Bruce Leafblad, it's my seminary, said that Jesus Christ has a table for two reserved for everyone who knows him. And he wants that time alone with you and me. That is the foundational practice of any believing person's life that fulfills the longing of the heart of Jesus. That's who Jesus is to us. A man by the name of Campbell Morgan, a great pastor of the 19th and 20th centuries, his ministry spanned both. He ministered in England, tells the story of a fellow pastor who himself was a well-known pastor, had a large congregation. He would finish his day of work precisely at 5 p.m., walk from the study in the church building where he would preach on the weekends and sometimes during the week, and the parsonage was resting on the same plot of ground. He would walk from there to his house just a few paces away, and then he would take a walk for about an hour around the grounds, beautifully kept. At some point in his ministry there, his only child, a daughter, whom he loved dearly, was old enough and wanted to be with her daddy. And he welcomed her. And they would walk together and they'd chat about things that that girl had on her mind and the father would listen as only a loving father can to a daughter. And they had great fellowship. This went on for years. After several years of uninterrupted fellowship with her dad, 
that frequently. You can imagine the kinds of conversation they had and the development of what already was a healthy relationship. All of a sudden, she told her dad one night at the dinner table, Father, I will not be with you tomorrow. He said, oh, why? She says, I've got something very important that I must do in that hour that we spend together walking. And he, respecting her, knowing that she was a godly girl, didn't think anything negative was going on, but he had a certain sinking in his own heart. Because we know what it means to be a father with a child or a mother with a child. We love being with our kids, don't we? Most of the time, anyway, we do. Right? So, the next day came. He got to the place that they would start off and he had really let it slip his mind. He looked around and he says, oh yeah, she's not going to be with me today. And he did his walk. The next day came. The days came, men into weeks, the weeks into months. After several months, all of a sudden, one day she showed up again. And she was carrying a package, beautifully wrapped. And she said, Father, I'm going to give you something that I have been working on all these months, and I've done it especially to show my love to you. And the father said, thank you. He opened it. It was a beautiful prayer shawl which she had handmade. She knew it was cold in the morning. There was no central heat at that time. And he would get up early in the morning to have his time alone with the Lord, and she knew it would keep him warm. She admired it. And then she looked at him. She said, Daddy, what do you really think about it? He said, Honey, I appreciate it so much. However, I would rather have time with you than anything you could make for me as much as I appreciate this present. That's the heart of Christ toward you. He wants time with me and He wants time with you. They had lost their first love. They had substituted something that on the surface looked perfectly good, but it was done with the wrong motivation. Have you ever noticed how we'll let ministry get in the way of intimacy with Christ? We devalue what we have in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This group of people or this individual in Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. Notice, where is the location of the backsliding? It happens in the heart. It's not visible, like good works are visible, aren't they? Maintaining good doctrine can be visible too. But it's hard to read a person's heart Eventually, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. We know that. And it's hard to keep a lid on that which is void of relationship building with the Lord. But we need to understand that Jesus detests this, actually. He exposes it in the book of Mark, chapter 7, when he's talking to the scribes who were the leading scholars of the day. They knew what we would call the Bible better than anybody in their region. But he said to them, he quotes Isaiah when he says this, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
We had a great time of worship and music today. You know, we can honor the Lord with our lips and our hearts can be far from Him. This is why I believe in describing what a Spirit-filled church is in the book of Ephesians when the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. All y'all is what he really says. He's speaking to the church. It applies to us as individuals. Be filled with the Spirit. And the next to the last characteristic of four characteristics is singing and making melody where? In your heart to the Lord. We need to be men and women. If we're going to be involved in worshiping the Lord in any setting, whether privately or publicly, we need to make sure it comes from our heart. And the Lord will be blessed by that. In preparing this message, my mind ran to two of the kings a father and a son of the nation of Judah. The first story is told in the 25th chapter of Second Chronicles. His name was Amaziah. Amaziah reigned for 20 years. That's a long time to be in office anywhere. 29 years he was a king. And this is what the writer of Second Chronicles says in the second verse of the chapter which tells his story. He says, Amaziah did what was right in the sight of God, but not with a whole heart. Half-hearted Christianity is a curse on the person who's half-hearted. There is no more miserable person than a person who has at one time enjoyed intimacy with Christ and has allowed some sin to block him or her from having that quality of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us who know Jesus know some of what that means. But we need to understand that this man, Amaziah, was a man who on the outside did good things. His own father, Joash, king of Judah also, had been assassinated. When Amaziah took the throne, one of his first acts was to see that the assassins were brought to justice and they were killed. But he adhered, according to the writer of Second Chronicles, they adhered to the law of Moses found in the 24th chapter of Deuteronomy in the 16th verse, where the Bible says that a son will not die for his father's sin, nor a father for the son's sins. Each person will die for his own sin. So he was keeping the law, wasn't he? He didn't take it out on the sons of these murderers, even though there was precedent for doing that in the history of the monarchies of Israel and Judah. If you study carefully, you can see evidences of that. But he served the Lord with less than a whole heart. He didn't serve him wholeheartedly. Backsliddenness is a condition that suggests previous progress and it means we're following back, falling back. Are you backslidden today? Are you drawing near to God? He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Are you walking with Jesus? Do you fellowship with Christ? Do you find him the most precious? We've sung about this today. The most precious person in your life. Or is he just someone you add on when it's convenient for you or you're in a crisis in your life? The father of Amaziah was Uzziah. 
Remember Amaziah reigned for 29 years? Now listen, Uzziah was king of Judah for 52 years. That's a long time to be doing anything. He got off to a spectacular start. He started so well and in the 26th chapter of Second Chronicles we're told why. He sought the Lord. And the writer says, as long as he sought the Lord, he remained strong. And then here's something for us to realize and guard against. When God gives us his strength, and he does, he's so willing to give us his power. When he gives it, if we're not diligent in our spending time with the Lord in intimacy, developing our relationship with the Lord, what happens is we begin to think we're doing it instead of His doing it. And we cannot continue to minister effectively unless we're having intimacy with the Lord, making His time with us the priority of our lives. Remembering what Jesus said about Mary. She's doing the one thing that cannot be taken from her. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I can witness to people about Christ. I can do all kinds of good things. And if I'm not spending time in intimacy with Christ, it will not be long before I'll start taking credit for that and justify my existence by thinking about all the good things I'm doing. We know what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes It says, we know that what God does lasts forever. What would the flip side of that be? Things which we do are gone the instant that they're done. And they will not stand the test of time and the judgment seat of Christ for sure. But we want to be men and women who don't fall into the trap of Uzziah. Because the Bible says, when he became strong... He became proud. Pride is a booger, isn't it? When it comes to messing our lives up. Pride. He became strong. He got the big head. After all, he was the king of a thriving nation. The nation flourished under his monarchy. And so he got so big in his own mind, he decided to take the rights of the priests and without asking a priest to do it, he took some incense. He goes into the holy place in the temple and he goes there with the view to offer the incense. Some courageous priests got wind of it. They confronted him and it flew all over him. In effect, he was saying, don't you know who I am? I'm Uzziah. I'm the king. I am the king. The authority God has placed here. And he ignored their rebuke. He went on in. He offered the incense and he became leprous just like that. And he lived the rest of his life apart from his own house. A beautiful palace undoubtedly. Probably the one that had been built by one of his great, great, great grandfathers, David, and had been lived in by all of his grandfathers and father. And he had to live in a little, probably, hovel outside. He couldn't even have contact with his family. Why? Because he quit seeking the Lord. He got too big for his britches. He suffered from the pride of position. Do you know what the Bible says about position? The Bible says 
that a man or woman cannot receive anything except it has been given to that person from heaven. Those were the words of John the Baptist when he was questioned by his disciples as to why he was saying so many good things about Jesus and people were leaving them to go hear Jesus preach. Well, John the Baptist understood, didn't he? He was filled with the Holy Spirit in the mother's womb, in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist was. He said in response to what those men who loved him, but they loved themselves more. The big problem with them was not that their boss, so to speak, their rabbi, was getting ignored. It was that they were getting ignored too because... Hey, you like to be around somebody whose notoriety is great, don't you? Isn't that kind of common? We want to be around celebrities, religious celebrities included in that. We want to do that. Well, he said to them, the friend of the bridegroom has joy when he brings the bride to the bridegroom. He's talking about Jesus, isn't he? He's talking about all those people whom he had preached repentance to prepare ye the way of the Lord. He brought them. And then he says this, He must increase. Jesus must increase. But I must decrease. This is our Lord saying to us, pride of position is a misunderstanding of who elevates people to positions of importance. If it matters, it's the Lord himself who does that. We can praise God for that, can't we? Let's remember that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of light. So here's the first idea that emerges from this simple part of one verse. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. Here's a second principle from this half verse. And it's this, backsliding is sickening if not deadly. Notice what the scripture says. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own way. The idea here, you kind of get sick to your stomach. You ever eaten too much of a good thing? It makes you sick. And you throw up. It's gross, isn't it? It's kind of the idea of the picture that's being painted here. And so he's saying, backsliding becomes sickening and and undoubtedly it does. If you know a life of backsliding, you know that what the writer of Hebrews says is true. Sin is pleasant. The Bible says that. Did you know that? For a season. Once you have played out that sin, sometimes it's like that. As soon as you've done it, you think, boy, that felt good or that was fun for a little while. But afterwards, it, if you know the Lord, it really bugs you. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin. And He knows, and you know too, that you are a person in whom He lives. And He sought you and He bought you with His perfect blood. His sacrifice on the cross, Jesus did, so that we could live the life God intended for all of us to live. I was thinking of what good illustration from Scripture do we have of this? And I thought of the man Samson. Do you know Samson? One of the judges of Israel. He was a wild hare, wasn't he? He was out of control. But do you know the Holy Spirit 
filled him on more than one occasion and did incredible things through this man. Unbelievable. I remember as a child, of all the stories in the Bible, I think Samson was the one I liked the best because he knew how to put a whooping on the enemy. He was amazing. But do you remember what happened to him? He finally gave in to a woman. He he had a penchant for wayward women. He didn't pick a wife from descendants of Abraham, from his own people who were monotheistic. He had a whim and a drawing to Philistine women. And he had at least three, maybe more, of those women, probably more. We have record of about three. Delilah was his lover. He was living with her out of wedlock. She kept bothering him, tell me the secret of your success, because she wanted to be a traitor to him, and she was going to sell him for a little bit of money. Unbelievable. But he was blind as a bat. His sin blinded him in his backslidden state. That's what happened. So we know what happened. He gave in, gave the secret to his power. Really, the power was not in his locks, his hair. The power was in his obedience to the Lord and obedience to the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where the power lay. But what happened to him? His eyes were gouged out. Can you imagine having your eyes gouged out? Unbelievable, the pain of that. And then not being able to see. And to add injury to insult or insult to injury would be the better way of saying in his case, he was taken to a prison house. And he had to grope around just to find his way around, to feel the walls, the exterior of the walls. And he had to get accustomed to this place. He lived in total darkness and he was berated, belittled. And from time to time he would be brought to the temple of the God of the Philistines, Dagon. And on one such occasion he was brought. A boy, this scripture tells us, took him by the hand and led him there. And the people were singing about their God had delivered their enemy, namely Samson, into their hands. This man who had destroyed their country, that's the way they said, and slain many people, they said. They sang this, but they sang it triumphantly because as they looked at him, there were 3,000 people on the top of this building. We don't know how large the building was, but it was a lot bigger than this building undoubtedly because it says the Flooring in there, the bottom floor was packed with people. And then add to that 3,000 more people. And so this boy brings him in. Samson prays to the Lord. His Lord, would you just give me power one more time? I would like to avenge these pagans. I would like to do that so that you would be glorified and not horrified by my life, my backsliddenness. So he told the boy to guide him in. And then the people were saying to him, and they were so foolish, but you see how the devil is fooled by Jesus all the time. The, the people there said, put his hands on the pillars. We want to see him. Because they knew, hey, he hasn't got any power anymore. He gave that up when he gave his secret of the cutting of his hair. So he puts his hands there. And then the Bible says, this is awesome The Bible says in the 16th chapter of Judges, he bent himself. The Revised Standard Version says he bowed with all his might. 
You see, all, there's no time except in this particular passage in 16. And I don't know how many years were spanned in the course of his being a judge, the judge in Israel. But a lot of years passed. There's no reference to his praying any other time than at this time. With all his might, he bowed. You know the hardest thing for you and me to do is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're so full of pride. We're like Uzziah. We're like Samson. We're like all the people in the Bible. We are insistence, insistent rather, upon our independence. That's what we are. And the result was he bowed with all his might and all of a sudden a resurgence of power came and he pushed on those pillars and all that came tumbling down. This is what the writer of Judges says. He killed more in his death than he did in his life. And there's a principle here for us, humbling ourselves by all means. But here's the other side of that. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We must die to ourselves if we are going to be people who overcome backsliding in our lives. Backsliding is a product of pride, really. Pride of place, pride of race, pride of money, pride of strength physically, beauty, all the things that we prize the world puts a premium on. Pride got Samson. He didn't think he could be beaten. Even if his locks were cut, he thought, I can do it. Remember what happened to Uzziah? Same thing happened to Samson before him. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, we're there. So look at verse 12. There is a way that seems right to man. Notice the word. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of what? Death. So backsliding is sickening, and it can be deadly. Let's look at the last thing that we're going to study together this morning about backsliding. We've seen that backsliding suggests a previous progression in faith. We've just seen backsliding is sickening, if not deadly. Here's the last thing. Backsliding is preventable and reversible, depending on where you are. And we're going to look together. We won't turn there. If you want to, you may. But when Sam read Psalm 16, there's the first part of verse 8. It says, I keep the Lord always before me. In Proverbs 4.23, the Bible talks about how we are to guard our hearts with all diligence. The heart is made up of the mind. We know that from Mark chapter 2, verse 6, where Jesus could see into the minds of his enemies who were trying to catch him in an error. He said he understood that they were reasoning in their mind is what the Bible translations say, but literally it's the word heart in the original language. And then also it has to do with the will. In Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, the Bible talks about how Daniel made up his mind not to contaminate himself with the foods of the king Nebuchadnezzar to defile himself. And the made up his mind means decided in his heart. The heart is an instrument not only of thinking, 
but also of choosing. And then we know, as Americans, we typically think of the heart having to do with our emotions. God made us emotional. Aren't you glad we have emotions? We can laugh, we can enjoy, we can cry, we can do all kinds of things, have a wide range of emotions. Well, we need to guard those aspects of who we are as followers of Christ, as children of God. We need to keep the Lord always before us. Our focus will be on Christ. And Christ is strengthened. Our focus on Christ is strengthened by memorizing Scripture since Christ is the subject of all the Bible. You may not know that. But in Luke 24, Christ in His post-resurrection appearance, one of them at least, He gathers His disciples around and He shows them starting with Moses and then going to the prophets and then the Psalms. He shows them how He is the Christ and the Christ is the focal point of all Scripture, not just the New Testament. And so we need to understand when we memorize Scripture, we have access to Christ in a way that we ordinarily would not have. In your bulletin, if you got one today, you'll notice that we're doing something called a scriptorium here. And I don't want you to get caught up in trying to figure out what that is. What I do want to let you know is there are going to be workshops in how to memorize Scripture, and they're going to be on Zoom. And we have the necessary data for you to get on and be taught by one of our ladies, Sylvia Torzani, who is an avid scripture memorizer. She's professor of anthropology at UTEP, loves the Lord, and she's going to show you how to be effective. If you want to get serious, you need to memorize the Word of God. Not to show off. It's not about showing off. If anything, it's about humbling yourself and learning from the Lord through memorizing Scripture. Because without memorizing Scripture, we cannot meditate on Scripture. And what does the Bible say in Psalm 1? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates how frequently? Day and night. He will be like a tree Firmly planted, and the word literally is transplanted. We know something about transplanting plants here in the desert, don't we? You get plants near water, they thrive in this climate. You take them away, and if they get removed some way by a drying up of a water source, it doesn't take long for them to wither and die in a hot summer like we have here, does it? Firmly planted in by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and It's what? Leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, whatever she does, if you meditate on the Bible, you know what it is really? It's muttering is what the word means. It's kind of like people think you're a little nuts probably because you're just kind of mumbling and muttering. It's repeating, 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 not for the sake of repetition, but for the sake of getting it ingrained in your mind. Then... You will be prosperous and successful is what Joshua 1.8 says. The name Dallas Willard means very little to the people in the room. I know that. 
this, but I'll tell you a little biographical information on Dr. Willard. He went to be with the Lord probably seven or eight years ago, in the last decade anyway. I never met him, but I was greatly blessed by his writings. In one of his books called The Great Omission, he makes this statement. He says, I can guarantee if people learn Joshua 1.8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. He said, I can guarantee that that's worth more than any college education that person can get. Now listen, any is inclusive of Harvard and Yale, Princeton, I'm not knocking those places, or Stanford, or Caltech, or Cal State, or any of the great universities in the U.S. Go to Oxford, go to Tübingen in Germany, find some of the great universities all over the world. Any college education. You know what made that statement a bona fide statement? This man was professor and chairman of the Department of Philosophy for decades at Southern Cal University. He said that. Does that recommend to you? He didn't have to say it. I could say it. And I don't have those kind of credentials. My father, who was a ninth grade graduate only, drove a truck for a living for the same company for 40 plus years, worked hard from 5 a.m. in the morning till 5 or 6 in the afternoon, six days a week sometimes. He knew the Lord. He loved the Lord. It doesn't matter what level of education you have. If you are a woman or a man of God who studies God's Word, puts the priority on developing your intimacy with God, ensuring the development of that intimacy by having God's Word in your heart, hiding it in your heart so that you will not sin against Him, treasuring it there. If you are in that situation, you then have the opportunity to meditate on His Word and the meditations of your heart will be pleasing in His sight, your Lord and your God, and you will be a person who does not live in subservience to your own backsliding. You can rise above as you trust the Lord. Don't knock it unless you've tried it. When you meditate on God's Word because you've memorized God's Word, you can have a perpetual quiet time. I believe the quiet time is the most important thing. What I tell new believers, I say, if you'll do this, remembering back to the conversation that Jesus had with Mary and Martha, think about that with this in mind. If you'll spend time alone with the Lord, reading the Bible, and you're faithful in that, and you obey what God says, I can let you go. I know you're going to do well because you're going to have that intimacy with the Lord. Well, what we know is, as we go through the day, we need the Word of God, don't we? We're faced with things that tempt us to backslide. We have all backslidden from time to time. If we know Jesus, every time I sin, I backslide. What we need to do, we've been taught properly in a moment, we know we've sinned and God lets us know by the Spirit. We say, I'm sincerely sorry, Lord, I don't want to be flippant about it, but I want to accept your forgiveness. You say you will if I confess my sin. You are faithful and just to forgive me. We must, in order to keep the Lord always before us, set apart Christ as Lord in our heart. In our heart, right? And we also need to remember what 
Paul wrote to the Colossians, the parallel to what he says in Ephesians, when he says, be filled with the Spirit. What does he say? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The way to be filled with the Spirit is to be a man or a woman who lets God's Word, Jesus' Word, take root in you. And you can think Jesus' thoughts after Him. We have the mind of Christ. We know Jesus. We know it from the Word of God. We can learn it. We can meditate on it. And it's not to prove that we're more spiritual than anybody else. It has nothing to do with it. We know it. God can use us. We're humbled by the fact that God would use us. Here's the second thing. Backsliding is preventable, reversible by guarding your heart, also by asking God to teach you His way. David did that, Psalm 86, 11. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And in 16, again, he says, The Lord will teach me his way. If I have him before me, in that context of this 16, 8, in verse 11, he says, The Lord will guide me in his way if we are men and women who have this kind of commitment to him. We trust in the Lord and we watch him work in this way. And what does God say? to the request of David. He doesn't say it in that psalm, but we go to another psalm of David, 32.8, and he says, I will, God's speaking here, I will instruct you, I will teach you. I'll do it. You'll know the way. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Isn't that a cool thing? How the Lord, he, He's watching us. It's not something to be fearful about. It's something to be grateful for. He's got His eye on us. He's wanting to counsel us. He's wanting to guide us. His Word, by the way, in, in the early service, we sang Psalm 19, we sang 19.14, and then we also sang Psalm 119.105. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Wow! Does that recommend learning the Word? You want guidance? You want to be successful? Be a man and woman or woman of the Word. And the Bible says this. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. Two things. One, he says this. He says, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Notice the repetitive usage of the term way or ways. This is the way. Walk in it when you turn to the right or the left. You and I can with confidence when we're walking with Christ, we might have a misstep. We probably will have a misstep every once in a while. But if we're listening to the Lord, what's He going to do? He says, wait a minute. Come back. Come back. It's because our minds are saturated with the Word of God. Our hearts are the repository, the place of the mind of Christ. Praise God. And then Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, says this. God says, my ways are higher than your ways. They are, aren't they? The moment I get too big for my spiritual britches is when I think I know better than the Lord. Recipe for disaster. Recipe for backsliding. Let's look at the third thing. First of all, guard your heart by putting the Lord always before you. Secondly, ask God to teach you His ways. Thirdly, know the Lord in all your ways. 
You will if you do what I've said so far. It's not what I say that matters, but what Scripture says. But trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. What? Acknowledge Him. The word acknowledge literally means know. Know the Lord in all your ways. What are the ways? It could be your marriage. It could be your parenting. It could be your job. It could be your worship. Look at the book of Proverbs. It could be the management of your money. All things related to life are dealt with in that great book, in the whole Bible for that matter. In the book of Haggai, twice in the first chapter, the Bible says, consider your ways. That's what we need to do. We need to take inventory of our ways to see if we are backsliding and then make the necessary adjustment to God. Not saying, God, do this for me and do that for me, but get right with God. Get in the right relationship with God. Here's the last suggestion. We can be people who reverse downward trends in our spiritual life or prevent from having an ongoing downward slide by finding a friend to walk through life with whom we can have a relationship because we're like-hearted. And this, I'm just going to look at one verse here. I wish I had time for more. But this is one that really captures 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul writes to Timothy, young man in the faith, a leader. He says, flee the youthful desires, the evil desires of youth, he says, and pursue righteousness, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Find somebody else who's pure-hearted. Ask God, give me a pure-hearted brother or sister in Christ. You can't do it alone, please. You will not succeed if you try alone. I just came off of a three-plus-week vacation, and I learned once again, I don't do alone well. I find myself backsliding, and this message kind of grew out of my backsliding. So... I'm not going to confess everything I did. I'll talk to you privately if you want to talk a little bit about it, maybe. But I find myself backsliding more readily when I'm alone. We need fellowship with each other. Thank God you're here today. There's something which happens when God's people are together, not just in a big place, but when iron sharpens iron. People are together. I know you can have it in your home. Praise God for Christian homes. But we really need it with People in the body, don't we? They need us. We need them. Because Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another, how frequently? Daily. Why? So that your heart, get it, your heart might not be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. We need a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, maybe several people who we can walk together. So when we fall down, they can pick us up. When they fall down, we can pick them up. We need each other, don't we? It's a wonderful facet of being a child of God. Closing with this thought. Going back to the letter to the church at Ephesus. They had left their first love. Included in that would not only have been Jesus but it would have been all the other brothers and sisters in the church 
Because the church is what? It's not an institution. That's a Western fabrication. The church of Jesus Christ biblically is the body, and I take that seriously, the body of Christ. And we need each other. We need to be with each other. Meeting once a week like we're meeting now is not enough, I'd say. Find some people that you can hang with who love the Lord. And you can help each other to grow because our first love is Jesus, but invariably, if we love Him, we love His body. And there are a lot of warts on all of us spiritually. Right? You can't find anybody perfect in the church, thank God. But we can love each other and we show the world what Christ does in forming outposts for His kingdom and something that's appealing to people who are hungry for something real and something loving. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look into Your Word today. We know that You promise that Your Word will not return to You void. I'm asking, Father, that You take all these Scriptures that we looked at and imprint them deeply upon our minds and hearts. Change us fundamentally. We do not want to live a backslidden life. Lord, would you say that to the Lord in your heart? I do not want to go on living a backslidden life. Today, would you say to the Lord, if you are backslidden, say, Oh Lord, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, Lord, that I have substituted some kind of religious life for an intimate life with you. Or I have chosen a life of out-and-out, flagrant, moral sin instead of choosing a life of purity walking with you. Lord, forgive me. Lord, fill me. Lord, give me a deep hunger for your word and you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.